Dr. Gowald is an assistant professor at Duquesne University and has a variety of interests as it relates to regenerative medicine technologies. Dr. Gowald, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you for having me here today, John. So, you have a number of interests that relate to materials and biomaterials. Perhaps you could begin this discussion by giving us a brief overview of your interest and some of your activities in your laboratory. Sure, I'd be delighted to. The overall focus of our lab is looking at the interface between biomaterials and tissues. And they may be hard tissues or soft tissues, but we're really interested in coding and improving the interfaces of implant materials and their interaction with tissue. And so as chemists, we look at two parts of the interface, both the interface that interacts with the tissue, but also the part of the coating that interacts with the surface of the implant material. And so we have a coating surface interface and a coating tissue interface that we concentrate on. As chemists, we want to understand the fundamental reactions that go on between the coating and the surface of the implant, say stainless steel or titanium, aluminum, vanadium, and what makes those covalent reactions occur so that the coating can be strongly adhered to the surface and therefore improve the lifetime of the implant, improve its ability to integrate into the body, and perhaps improve its ability to stave off infection. And so we're really concentrating on the actual coating of the implants, but also its interaction with the surface. And so how our group does that is we start first with looking at the interface, building coatings from the bottom up, from the surface of the implant. And so we take a look at all the surface components of an implant material, say stainless steel, and we determine what are the chemical components of the surface and what they might react with. And then we go from there to build a multifunctional coating that may do a number of things, including a resist nonspecific adhesion of cells or nonspecific adhesion of bacteria to resist biofilm infection. And then we would go on to intercalate things like cell adhesion peptides or drug delivery motifs into our multifunctional coating. So let's perhaps take one step backwards. What are the problems that these technologies are working to address or why, once you achieve the goals that you've set out, will things be better from a biomedical perspective? So one of the major problems with implants is nonspecific adhesion of cells and bacteria to the implant. And so if cells and protein adhere to the surface, you might get encapsulation of the implant or in stent applications, you can get reclosure of your arteries and veins, and you need the surgery to be redone. And so uh, we would like to prevent scar tissue formation, as many other people would like to do on the surface. And we'd also like to prevent nonspecific adhesion of bacteria to the surface, because the bacteria adhesion leads to what we call biofilm formation. And these biofilms then cause infections that are not addressable by systemic antibiotics, which is a major problem. So you, you mentioned stents as one destination for these technologies. Are there others mm-hmm. I mean like prostheses for hip and joint replacement? Yes, certainly the infection 
problem is a bigger problem in joint prostheses like hips and knees, longer-term type implants like bone growth or hard tissue implants. So you've mentioned the biofilms. Perhaps you can elaborate a bit on the applications or the issues that this technology is trying to address. Sure. We work in collaboration with the Center for Genomic Sciences at Allegheny General to try and create coatings that would be resistant to bacterial adhesion on the surface of hip implant materials. And these include stainless steel, cobalt chromium molybdenum, and titanium aluminum vanadium. And we look at changing the surface properties through thin film formation on the surface. So our lab looks at the covalent attachment of small molecules and polymeric molecules to the surface and their adhesion properties, their wetting properties, and how that affects bacterial adhesion on the surface of Staph aureus. And then we look at the growth of Staph aureus on the surface and also its ability to form what we call biofilms. And biofilms occur when any kind of bacteria adheres to the surface, and over time it secretes a polymeric matrix. And this polymeric matrix then encapsulates the bacteria, and at this point it becomes a self-sustaining colony. And these type of infections are not able to be killed by systemic antibiotics. And so the only way to get them off is to take out the implant and scrape off the biofilm and replace the implant with either a new one or a cleaned implant material. So in terms of the infection that gets on this surface, is Mm -hmm. this something that accumulates after the implant is in place or is this an infection or bacteria that comes into the body with the implant? Well, we assume that the implant is sterile going in. It could come from the surgical environment that it's in, and certainly hospitals track their infection rate to make sure that that's not going on. But yeah, everybody's body has a lot of bacteria in it, and a number of people who are receiving these implants have low immune systems, and so they are much more susceptible to infection rates in general. And many different kinds of bacteria can form biofilm infections. And things that cause just regular infections in your body, like an ear infection, those kinds of bacteria can also form biofilm infections on your hip implant. So it's not a very special kind of bacteria that forms biofilm infections, but really any regular run-of-the-mill bacteria can form these biofilm infections. So you mentioned that you're collaborating with your colleagues at uh, Allegheny General What's the status of these studies? Are they in preclinical or clinical studies? We're in very preclinical studies. We are looking at biofilm growth with Staph aureus. And, of course, we'd like to look at some other strains of bacteria before we would go into clinical studies because the coating that might resist one type of bacteria might not be effective against a different type of bacteria. But we're doing several week studies on these bacteria with the coatings and looking at different surface properties and seeing which ones would best control the bacteria formation. And in general, people feel that implant coatings are not necessarily going to be a long-term solution to the biofilm problem, but that they can keep bacteria off the implant long enough so that systemic antibiotics can take care of the bacteria that is in the person's system before the biofilm is able to take hold on the implant. So in terms of your coatings for uh, preventing biofilm formation, I gather this is a rather fundamental study that would be many years perhaps before this can be clinically available? Yes. As chemists, we like to start and build our coatings from the bottom up. And so we have taken a survey of 
a number of different organic molecules and functional groups that would react with the surface and determined the adhesion of each of those with the surface and how that would affect the adhesion of the coating because we want the coating to be strongly adhered. All of these implants, stents or, or hips or whatever, are going to be exposed to a number of different mechanical flow forces and so we want to make sure that the coating is able to withstand all these forces so then they can properly achieve their tissue function. And so we need to really start at the bottom of that. And so our lab really looks initially at the covalent formation of monolayer and polymeric thin films on the surface. And we've had some great success in forming monolayer films on the surface of stainless steel and titanium, aluminum, vanadium, and its components, and then using those to build or present multifunctional groups at the interface that then change the interaction with the cells and the bacteria. So this has been an interesting discussion about preventing the formation of films. Uh, You mentioned earlier in our discussion the fact that uh, you also are looking at adhesion of cells. Uh, Can you elaborate a bit on those interests and the status of that work? Sure. We also are interested in stent applications, and there we're mainly interested in preventing the formation or overgrowth of scar tissue in arteries and veins so that people don't need to have their arterial stents or venal stents replaced nearly as often. And so we have also taken a look at forming films on those surfaces, which uh, consist of stainless steel 316L and nitinol, which is a shape memory metal, and forming monolayers on there and functional polymeric films that have been grown from monolayers that control the surface, prevent cell adhesion, and also are quite successful at preventing corrosion of the surface of these materials, which is occasionally a problem in these applications as well. So you mentioned the principal application is with stents, and I've seen some of the other work that's available on coated stents. How does this approach differ from the coated stents that are used currently in clinical practice? The material is polymeric, and it is fizzy-sorbed onto the surface, meaning that there is no chemical bond between the polymeric material and the surface. And the coating itself is also very susceptible to cracking, which is a problem, and then allows the coating to come off more easily and not necessarily in places that they would like it to delaminate from, whereas our coatings are covalently bound to the surface and much more strongly adhered. And why would that be better from a clinical perspective? Well, some of the polymeric coatings are simply drug-release coatings, but they want them to have a, a certain amount of drug release over time, and they really only want the drug released and not the polymer that is the delivery device also released into the person's body. And so they would like the polymer to stay on the surface while the drug is released because the polymer can, of course, cause some other issues in the bloodstream. Dr. Gwalt, this has been an interesting discussion. Uh, I also understand that you've uh, been involved in some work on bone scaffold tissue engineering applications. Can you give us some insight into that, please? We work with Westmoreland Advanced Materials on a potentially new bone scaffold material. It's a calcium aluminate mixed phase material. And the benefit of this material over currently available materials is that it can be cast at room temperature very easily into any shape. 
And so it has a couple of applications. One is an on-site application where if you had an injury and you were, say, in a battlefield or far away from medical attention, you could cast this material into a paste and it could be a temporary bone filler until you were able to get back to more advanced medical attention and make sure that that was cast appropriately. Or in craniofacial injuries where people have had radiation decay or severe osteoporosis, this material can be cast into a three-dimensional material from an MRI image so that it's an exact fit to your jaw or a part of your skull, which cannot be done with things like stainless steel plates. Of course, they cannot be melded into your personal defect. And so this material has those advantages along with it's quite inexpensive. So is this material intended to be a scaffold on which new bone would form? Yes, yes. The material is intended is porous. It has average size pores of around 100 micron. It's also chemically modifiable, which is uh, also where my group comes in, and we've modified it to contain antibiotics to prevent infection to have cell adhesion peptides that attract osteoblast over scar tissue forming cells, and it can also be modified to attach melatonin, which is thought to improve bone growth. And these are currently in rat animal long-term studies. This uh, whole concept of using essentially CAD design to form new craniofacial structures is very exciting to me. Having compounds such as you just described, of course, is an essential component of being able to accomplish such objectives. So, Dr. Gual, I should have mentioned this at the outset, but uh, I I recall that you recently received a a new grant from NIH to continue your biofilm studies, and uh, I'd like to say congratulations and best wishes to you and your team as you pursue those new endeavors. Thank you very much. Speaking of your team, uh, perhaps you could share with us just a bit about uh, your laboratory and uh, your trainees. Sure. My lab currently consists of three graduate students and four undergraduate, which is pretty typical for a lab at Duquesne University. We have 15 federally funded research active faculty and approximately 50 graduate students and 70 undergraduates. And my laboratory students, uh, two PhDs have graduated and are currently postdocing at the University of Michigan, and one just finished her postdoc at the University of Pittsburgh. While many of our students postdoc at Duquesne and then go on to teaching positions at uh, regional institutions like Westminster, Carlo, and Chatham, other students have gone on to positions at Michigan State, UMBC, and Auburn University. So we're quite proud of our students in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Duquesne. Dr. Gual, thank you for joining us and sharing with us the uh, exciting studies that you have underway and what opportunities these present for clinical practice in the future. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics for these podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. While we cannot diagnose uh, medical problems via the Internet, your ideas and concepts for topics to cover are welcome and encouraged. Uh, As we conclude, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine who sponsors this podcast series. Until we join you in another two weeks with another exciting interview, thank you and best wishes. Mm -hmm.